Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 37 years of law enforcement analysis experience. (laughs) She was the crime analysis program manager with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. She was part of the Major Crimes Bureau, where she was the sole analyst providing uh, analysis targeting robbery series, murders for hire, kidnappings for ransom, and stalking cases. She's worked with cases involving organized crime, outlaw motorcycle gangs, prison gangs, and blood sports and casino operations. Please welcome the one and only Elizabeth Rodriguez. Liz, how are we doing? Fine. 37 years. That sounds so long, but it seems like yesterday. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I was thinking that outside of your family, I was probably the only one counting the days till you retire so we could have this conversation. (laughs) That's great. No, I, I really want to thank you for the opportunity. This is this is great. It's been a while. We were talking in the prep call when we first met writing those SMT papers for IACA. And that, that seems forever ago. And, and You need to bring those back. Those were so <laughs> valuable. And on one of the papers, that was actually used for a, at the FBI Academy. And my lieutenant said, hey, your paper's here. We're actually studying it. So we need to do that again. Yeah, that, I never imagined that that would be the reach of those papers. So that's that's good to hear. So, yeah, all right. Great. We're going to go in the Wayback Machine. Ooh. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Well, actually, uh, I was in. I just graduated from college, went to Loyola Marymount University, and uh, I have a friend who worked for the county and said, "Hey, I saw this job description for a new position with Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. It's called Crime Analyst. I know, Liz, that you work for the courthouse. I worked at the time at the criminal courts as a student worker for several years, putting me through high school and college." And I liked research. That was part of my studying at Loyola. And she thought this would be a perfect match for me. But I really didn't know what crime analysis was or what the job entailed. And there wasn't a lot out there. But Hmm. as a kid, I've always wanted to, I was always wanted to know how the suspect was arrested when I'd hear the news and the suspect was arrested for this robbery series or this thing. And it was like, wow, I want to, how, how did they do that? And it's always been in the back of my mind. I love puzzles. And so when this job came up, I tested for it and I still really didn't understand what it entailed, but I tried to learn as much as I could. And I got the job. I passed the test and I was one of the 24 crime analyst to start with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department in October of 1986. Um, It was actually first started uh, by Wendy Harn. Um, She was my boss. She is, that was kind of her vision to start the program with the department. She had paperwork developed in 1985 and this whole program came to fruition in 1986. 
Yeah, you you mentioned passing the test. What was the test like? Uh, you know, it was it was looking back at it, we actually redesigned the whole test again. We threw <laughs> it out because it wasn't really measuring what we really wanted for the analysts. It was a lot of statistics, which is uh-huh. was fine. Math had a little bit of logic, not much, but it primarily had things like more a little bit more of a clerical function mm-hmm. to it, but it did have the mean, medium, mode questions to it basic <laughs> basic statistics that they did uh, but but we actually years later annie mitchell supervising crime analyst my partner in crime and i uh looked at the test and said we need to get different candidates we're not getting the right candidates and we redeveloped the whole exam yeah annie spoke <laughs> up and, and made a change that's a surprise yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's so quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So so as you're going in for the, the first couple of days, this is a new program, new to the department, you're new to the profession. What were those first couple of days like trying to just be a crime analyst? Well, it, it was it was an uphill battle for sure. And again, I had my colleagues and the other candidates who had passed the exam and we were kind of like a little the kids in the soccer group were kind of all hanging and huddling together because we didn't know how to best approach it but mm-hmm. at where the station where I was assigned they were very open to helping me integrate and and when I first got there I did have a sergeant who sat down with me and said mark my words law enforcement and computers will never go together and and from there I'm like okay well this is going to be a fun job and you know I and so I started learning things on my own I started looking at books. We had a two-week course, actually, we took with Steve Gottlieb. He was actually Mm -hmm. working for the Department of Justice, and he introduced us to the crime analysis from first report to final arrest, Mm -hmm. that book that I got back then. I need to get his autograph on it because (laughs) I have. I had it so long, and I've loaned it to so many people. But I also, I recently found this letter. I'm going through all my paperwork, you know, starting to to sift things and and shred and, and keep and I, I have a letter that I sent, and I sent it actually to all the analysts as my farewell um, note to them. And it was a, a notice that said, who is that person? And it describes who I am and why I'm here. I'm here. I'm responsible for collecting and analyzing this criminal information, and I'm here to help you. Um, and uh, if there's anything that you need, my goal is to increase the number of cases cleared by arrest and provide investigative leads. And uh, But one of the sentences in that, note said because much of the crime information collected by crime analysis will now be entered into a computer a relatively new concept in law enforcement i invite you to check it out and see if uh, you can provide me any feedback and so you know it was definitely a new concept i had one computer that i shared with our um another uh, more of a clerk who uh we would be the only ones to use it. I think our IT person was somebody who happened to have a personal computer at home and she became our <laughs> IT person. And so it was sounds it sounds so archaic, but it mm-hmm. wasn't that long ago, relatively speaking. And and I know the next year I received a, a command inspection and my boss is saying, you know, she recommends that I they purchase a compact 386 microcomputer for me <laughs> because it would take me to that next level. And and so it it was definitely an uphill battle going to meetings. You know, I would 
pretty much be the only civilian at some of these meetings, such as crime information sharing meetings. And I had some people, obviously, who were very nice to me and others who, you know, would say the rudest things. And, you know, you just had to, you know, be tenacious. You had to be resilient. And and you said, okay, I'm here to do a job and I I can do this. I really try to overcome a lot of that. And, you know, I still see some of that to this day to some analysts, but I think it's gotten so much better across the board for everybody. But I know a lot of my colleagues at the time were having a lot more trouble than I was. Yeah. So the data then, had they been entering data into a records management system for a while, or did that also start when the analyst program started? I mean, there was certain elements. I mean, obviously, you know, we have our clets, and so a lot of that was already being accessed. Mm-hmm. They had some of our, our CAD data, which is mm-hmm. now our, our dispatch data there, but it's very, it's the same system we still use today. And so they, that was there. But as far as crime reports being entered in and field information reports, those were not entered in at all. So I, those were, that was a whole new concept of entering that in, identifying the series, the patterns, the trends, and putting that all together and compiling them into products. That was a whole new concept. So I, uh, I want to get a better idea of what it was like. So this, this actually brings us to your analyst badge story. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career-defining case or project that an analyst works. And so you're just starting when this when this case comes on your desk. How did you okay. get started with the case? And then we'll go from start to finish. Okay, sounds great. Well, this first big case, it was this is what made me very passionate about crime, the crime analysis profession. And it happened around 87, 1987, 1988. And it involved an Eastern European organized crime group. Some refer to them as Romanian travelers. And and it's funny because this was my case and I was thinking about what my case would be when I was going to be speaking with you. And then I heard last week's podcast with Laura Weaver from Mm -hmm. Texas. And she mentioned the same crime group that's still targeting areas all over the United States. And uh, so it's almost kind of come full circle for me. But going back to this case, you know, it kind of brings about all the sources that are out there that may not necessarily be used today. But, you know, being new to crime analysis, I was very fortunate to have a couple of detectives who took me under their wing and and they showed me the ropes and they took me on ride alongs. They introduced me to you know the very the various facets of law enforcement, many contacts. And we actually met business owners and would go into stores and, and meet them. But also we'd also meet the local pawn shop owners and the detectives would make frequent trips to these pawn shop owners. And it was kind of a mutual respect. They'd come in and then they'd pick up their stack of pawn slips of detectives and they would bring it back to the station. And then they kind of walk me through the whole process of the pawn slips and we would divide the pawn slips between the those items that were pawned versus bought, which the bought were more likely going to be potentially stolen, but not always. But I began to create a file system for them and which, you know, given the limited automation, you know, it was we didn't have a lot to do with that other than manually file them. But the Department of Justice in California at the time had a great automated automated pawn system that would allow for the flagging of names and that kind of 
came in handy at the at the end of my case that I'm going to be discussing today. But since many of our current LASD analysts were trying to identify ways to be of value to their respective units, we're trying to come up with all kinds of different you know, products, bulletins, and the kind of the watch briefings. And we created a ponders of interest list. And this is something we would share with detectives and patrol and with other analysts. And it was just frequent ponders or ponders that were maybe had pawned a class ring or something of unique, a unique item that may be identified as stolen based on crime reports. And then I would made, I made sure I was in the loop of getting all the crime reports because that was a whole new process in itself. You know, I had to have the, the clerk send me crime reports and I'd read all those. And I noticed that two residential burglaries and some thefts had similar MO. And I began to read the reports more carefully. And I noticed that they all involved a large dollar loss of jewelry and some small items, including prescription medication. In all the cases, the suspects targeted elderly victims all between the ages of 80 to 85, 80 to like 95. Uh, And they had all had primarily been outside gardening. And if a female suspect would approach the victim, they'd state they either lost their dogs or they would pretend that they were delusional. And and if a male suspect would approach the victim, they said they were there with a utility company and all would convince the lone victim to enter their residence, you know, continuing the conversation, ultimately distracting them. And when they would leave, um, the suspects, you know, leave, the victims would discover that the bedrooms were ransacked and the medicine cabinet doors were open. And so I collected all these reports. I wrote down all the victims' names. I showed it to a detective and he agreed that I was onto something. And I created a very rough crime bulletin in a dot matrix printer on WordPerfect. And I also created a pin map and uh, with real pins and you didn't have a pin. Yeah. So I, I'm the one who did the real pin map. And I, I went down to the list of Steve Gottlieb's recipe list of like what you're supposed to do. And I went to the briefings. I went to ride alongs. I went to see where the houses were located. I also mm-hmm. called neighboring agencies and I spoke with the detectives and I contacted other LASD analysts to see if they had similar cases and, and some actually did. And then I also informed our burglary apprehension team, which is a surveillance team, about those dates and times of the burglaries, along with the suspect vehicle and suspect descriptions. And and mind you, that's kind of standard, you know, book textbook processes now. But back then it was it was kind of new territory, at least for me. And so you know, I also took note that, you know, the jewelry had been stolen, but I also made note of the unique items. And so on a daily basis, I would check my pawn slips against my crime reports. And and then, you know, I, again, continue to call around the area and I became the lead role and uh, the lead analyst on this case. And I, and I thought that was like the coolest thing because mm-hmm. you're like, hey, now I'm, I'm at the helm and working with these very cool detectives. And so one day I received a ponders of interest list from an analyst at Lenox Sheriff Station, which is now South L.A., and I noticed that some unique items matched the items that had been written down and were that had been stolen in my jurisdiction. And the name of the opponent was very unusual and was later found to be a Romanian name. And I relayed the information to the detectives. I rushed over there and and they rushed to the pawn shop and they were able to recover the stolen item. And I began to do workup uh, on the pawner and I found very limited information. But you know, based on these established networks between the pawn shop owners and the detectives. The pawn shop owner says, hey, you know what, this lady, I'm pretty sure she's staying at the motel that's pretty, that's close by. 
And so they, they obtained search warrants and the suspects were ultimately arrested. And the item at the pawn shop was, was the only one that was recovered at that, at that residential burglary incident. But, and the rest had been melted down, unfortunately. But from there, since we had other similar incidents outside of our department, we decided to have a property lineup because they, these other detectives found tons of jewelry in their jurisdictions based on these suspects as well that were involved. And so the detective invited me to the property lineup, which was at the county jail. But it also involved picking up these victims because they couldn't drive and to to identify their property. And since it's all over L.A. County at this point in Southern California, we had to have a central location. You couldn't bring it to them. So we had to pick up these elderly victims in walkers and in wheelchairs and, you know, and such. And it was, you know, we had to, you know, it was it was a something that I will never forget to this day because when they would locate their piece of jewelry, I mean, some would cry because they thought <laughs> they would never see their elderly, you know, their, their, their heirlooms ever again. And so you kind of got to see the, the crime side of things, that the narrative that was written by the, the patrol deputy on the report, the investigative side, which was the apprehension of the suspects. But most importantly, I got to see the victim side of things. And that's when I knew I want to do this for the rest of my career. I mean, that was it for me. And, um, you know, since then, again, you know, I see that, you know, obviously these Eastern European groups are still at it. You know, they've done different types of MOs since then involving these groups. But um, I just know with, you know, ring devices now and the analyst toolboxes and all the, and I know, well, you know, these crimes are going to get solved um, ultimately. So hmm. that's my, my, my big case I have. I had so many other fun cases to do, but that was, to me, that was the best indicator of why I wanted to go down the crime analysis path. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, for the victims, you, you mentioned their heirlooms. I think I'll say my generation for a lack of a better term. I, I don't know if we appreciate jewelry, especially older jewelry, like your victims would have during that time. You're talking about in the <laughs> 80s, people that are 80, 90s years old that went through World War One, World War II. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. that <laughs> mentality, like, that would have been a really big deal for them. That, oh, that, that yeah. bit of a uh, little bit of a keepsake, a little bit of history, a lot of value to them. So that's that's really awesome. And mm-hmm. I, I, as you're talking about this, I'm smiling because this is crime analysis and the whole story from beginning to end had no computer in it whatsoever. Right. It's true. <laughs> it right. So no yes. computer whatsoever from even getting the case. Right. The, the, the files were handed to you. The reports were handed to you. The data coming into you was the the paper pawn shop receipts coming in mm-hmm. and then the information back and forth from the detectives. I mean, none of this from beginning to end had anything to do with a computer. So no Google. Now, even your pin maps, your pin maps you, you don't got the Google street view of, of the street, right? You went out yeah. there and with a ride along and exactly. no lookup, no, no records management system, CAD, LexisNexis, all these tools that analysts have at their disposal via the computer. None of that was there in this very first case. That's true. Actually, I never thought about it that way, but you're right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I saw so the next time there's a power outage at, at somebody's unit of assignment, I think they need to stay there and continue working. 
they could actually do the job. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, Steve does yeah. uh, pro- still promote the ruler and the projector, I think, in oh, his classes. So <laughs> I tell you, I had that book next to me the whole time. Like, okay, I checked that one off. Check that one off. I did that. It, it was like a, it was like a recipe. I ran down that list. <laughs> Yeah. Looking back at your 37 years and wanting to keep this to an hour long conversation. So Mm -hmm. I got to got to pick and choose what we want to talk about next. But as you're looking back, maybe point out three or four big moments, big changes in your position or your unit or the department that once we start doing this, this is or got this or this started happening, this this changed the game a little bit, maybe some game changers. Well, I, I mean, I think, I mean, definitely it's going to start out with centralization and that is specific to our department and, but it, it kind of leads into something else and I'll mention that a little bit in a little bit, but centralization. And I think Annie Mitchell talked about it in her, her talk with you, but it, you know, we had at the time 20 something, maybe 30 something analysts and right before Christmas, a few days before Christmas, we were notified by our lieutenant. And he was a supervisor, I was a manager at the time, and we're told that, okay, we are now all going to be under one umbrella. Mm. Prior to that, each analyst was at their unit of assignment, and they would kind of do things based on whatever station wanted them to do or whatever their unit wanted them to do. So it was never really standardized. My lieutenant said, we're changing that. Figure it out. See you later. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so we we put our heads together and we panicked for a bit. And then we were like, OK, let, let's, let's focus. And so, you know, with centralization, it allowed our program, the crime analysis program, to have like one mission and one goal. And that's kind of be going to be in alignment with their crime analyst job specs and um, and the profession as a whole. So, you know, that meant that, you know, one analyst could be doing crime analysis, but they're all going to be doing crime analysis. Not one else won't be doing a plotter of party flyers and all that. It was, we're all going to be pretty much doing the same crime analyst job spec that we're supposed to be doing what we are hired to do. And that it also reduced a, a fragmented program, you know, allowed for a more structured environment. It gave us, you know, more standardizations in the way we process things. Our timekeeping was all under one umbrella now. The way we function daily, the hardware and software we used, everybody got the same software. Everybody got the same tools mm-hmm. to use. I mean, we became more uniform in that way. We were able to also, you know, identify and kind of measure employee performance too because we didn't know you know who was doing what and now we're able to see okay maybe this person needs a little bit more help in this training or maybe this person can now teach something because they're excelling at something so we're able to kind of get a little bit better view on their performance and then we're able to standardize training but also when I was coming up with a budget I was given a budget which now was specifically allocated to help crime analysts and it wasn't we didn't have to share it with anybody else and then it, it, it that ultimately it, it creates a team environment uh, because now we're all one we're under a one umbrella and and it ad- adds a level of professionalism as well and then again it kind of focused on doing crime analyst duties and not other functions that were not in our in our job purview but you know, obviously we want to help everybody out when they need to make copies and things like that. But for the most part, we were specifically doing crime analysis duties. So that was huge. And I I have to say, you know, I was invited last year, Christopher Bruce and Rachel Carson invited me to 
be on a Zoom session with the National Police of Ukraine, and they're kind of weirdly kind of modeled after. I mean, their their model is kind of similar to ours, where their analysts are all over the place. They're just mm -hmm. everywhere. But you know, I mentioned the centralization model, and they actually liked it because they don't know what who's doing what. It's where. And they thought this would be a little bit more, a little bit more effective for them as well. So it was kind of nice to share that information with them, although they're a whole different country and, you know, they're going through a lot of different things than L.A. County is. But but that same model, I think, is kind of going to be very effective for, for them and for many other people as well. Yeah, the sheriff's department there. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> large area, right? So if it, you it have is. all these analysts spread out all over the the county, I mean, you're going to have different pockets of, are going to have different uh, problems. And what I always think about too, as an analyst, when you're put at one of these stations or put in any department, most of the, my career, I was always assigned to a, a sworn either sergeant, lieutenant, or captain. And mm -hmm. those positions can get rotated through, switched around annually. And, and before you're centralizing, you have these analysts out there probably reporting to a local sworn person of the unit of that department, and they're rotating through, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of turnover there. So I, I can imagine, you know, for their point of view that, you know, that maybe some of them have been there a long time and thought, oh, you're taking one of my employees away. Now I can't, I can't direct this analyst to do what I want him or her to do. Mm -hmm. And so I, I mean, there's, but at the same time, and for the analyst, it's like, okay, I'm, it's like a, you know, it's, it's really hard to get certain things done when you have a rotating door of leadership there. That's true. But, you know, it, it's, it, you know, we do a lot of documentation and we have certain guidelines that each analyst should follow in their job to be, to, you know, to have optimal level of analysis for their unit. And, but in addition to giving it to them, we also give it to the unit of assignment. So if we have, there's a new captain at that place or a new lieutenant comes in, um, we also share that document with them to say, these are the expectations that your analysts will be following as, as a crime analyst. So you understand that, you know, to give them something completely different than, okay, you're going to be the next, you know, CAD coordinator or some other thing. Mm -hmm. We already have their job specifications to, to outlined. So they're able to see that. So it, it helps out both parties. It's not used like, you you know, crime analysis is your job and you have to stick to it. But it also mm -hmm. lets the unit of assignment know these is, this is what your analyst does. So don't go too outside of that realm because you won't get your optimal analysis if you do. What was another game changer? Oh my gosh, it's hard to really say, but emerging crime and trends that are out there now. The I mean, we have now phishing scams and the ransomware attacks and you know domestic terrorist threats. You know it. You know we're doing things that are now addressing completely different crimes than going back to 1987 and 1988 that weren't even, you know, up, you know anywhere a thought in our, in our heads. You know, human trafficking has always been around, but now it's so much at an accelerated rate. So mm -hmm. those are the things that we have to kind of keep at the forefront of. We have to understand what's out there because, you know, we, you know, they, they're so far beyond doing certain things. And we have the increase of ghost guns. How are we going to track those? What do you, what happens when, 
you know, when we have to, when they seize weapons and how do they get categorized, the mass shootings that are out there. So a lot of that's just the emerging crimes and trends of the cyber crimes and the phishing scams and the ransomware attacks and the domestic terrorist threats. You know, it's, there's so much out there. We are now using social media platforms that Mm -hmm. we were never using before. We're using those for situational awareness, you know, for those large events that happened for, you know, the civil unrest that recently occurred. And, and, you know, we just look at that for doxing as well. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, there's so many new things we need to be aware of that we can't be complacent and say, Mm -hmm. oh, it's just about property crimes and, and robberies and, and such, but, you know, it gets more sophisticated than that. And I think that's where we have to look at that. And also the critical events that are occurring on the world stage, you know, they may be occurring in Sweden, but they may affect us on the local level as well. And we have to look at those crimes too. The ghost guns? So they're, they're unserialized and untraceable firearms that they have. And, and so we work closely with the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Unit, ATF. We work very closely with that. But they're usually constructed by individuals using unfinished frames or receivers. And it's really hard to track those because obviously they're unserialized. So there's other ways that we that we don't, but ATF tracks them. And we, we categorize them to help ATF track those types of ghost guns. And we have to provide certain statistics to them but Mm -hmm. it is something that's so new well relatively new on the market that it's really hard to trace and especially if it's a a ghost gun is used in in a murder and Mm -hmm. you know in those they're you know unfinished frames and and unserialized parts that make it very difficult to to trace so they're not really owned uh, by any person or can be traced to any one buyer Hi, this is Sally Rawlings, and I'm curious if other people have the same experience. You get on an airplane to travel somewhere, and the person sitting next to you says, oh, what do you do for a living? And you say crime analysis, and they go, oh, I love CSI. I watch all the shows. I almost did it, but then I didn't. So then you debate, do I correct him, or do I just roll with it? I've gotten to the point now, I go, yep, CSI is awesome. I am excited to announce that I will be hosting Leap into Law Enforcement Analysis, a TED Talk style event at a local high school in Dallas, Texas during the IACA conference. The lineup is Deb Peel, Urissa Walsh, Mike Jackson, and Bell Pedroza. And we will be at the Grand Prairie High School on Tuesday, August 29th from 9.30 to 11.30. So we're hoping to give these students who have shown an interest in pre-law and criminal justice, a little taste of all the great things that law enforcement analysis has to offer. If you are interested in putting on a similar event, either at a high school or college, please contact me at leapodcasts at gmail.com. So you're dealing with more sophistication. Obviously, 9-11 is going to be a, a marker on there as you, as you look back uh, how that changed not only the police department role, but the analyst role. And in, in 2008, 
that's when you become a manager, right? That's correct. I actually did at the, the IACA in 2021 and at the California conference in 2022, I did a presentation on making the move from crime analysts because you're having so much fun there and <laughs> how do you make the move to management? And, and that, that was actually a lot of fun to put that together. Yeah. So what are, you, what are some takeaways there? That, what's your recommendation? You know, you know, I, I say that, you know, there's a lot of pros and cons of going to management. I think one mm -hmm. of the, you know, pros to going to management is that, you know, sometimes people have a, a vision that may be different than what's happening right now. And they're like, you know what, I have this goal that I would like to see. I like to have this vision. And so, you know, hey, if there's a position open in, in management, you know, I'm going to take it. You know, there's, you know, there's analysts who, you know, want to see changes made and, you know, how can they best be effective? And I think by taking a, a leadership role and becoming a manager, they can, you know, have a, an effect on the way, you know, the, the, the budget gets allocated and, mm -hmm. you know, how the analysts are, are being hired. And, you know, like I said, with, you know, Annie and I, when we looked at, you know, redoing the exam you know we we're in a position to do that because mm -hmm. we wanted to see the candidates there but you know I, I think with those who have a clear vision you know I think they should you know take that step if you enjoy teaching and learning and you want to challenge I think it's very very doable for you to, to make that move and I think with the increase of crime analysts within each department you know there's going to be a need for more supervision and last year, I think it was Albert Mesa in Chicago talked about getting a user group together to discuss management and supervision because there's not a lot of talk about how do you make that move and how do you go to that next level. And when you're there, you know, it's nice to have a sounding group of some colleagues that can also relate and maybe troubleshoot some issues that you're maybe experiencing and that may want to resolve. Now the private sector got Albert. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, that is true. <laughs> Management. Yeah, you're right. Because some group yeah. got, a, got there. Well, so, someone yeah, can he, take over that. He needs to pass the baton. But, but yeah. there is such a need for that out there because I think it's so important that, that we focus on supervision and management because just because you're a really ace analyst doesn't mean you're going to make a good transition to be a supervisor or a manager either. What was your vision then? By the way, you're describing this, that 2008 came around and that you pitched an idea or at least had some vision in your head of what you wanted to change. Yeah, I, I there was a lot of things that I, I wanted to see. I wanted to see more software tools being purchased. I wanted to be more of a, a person that, you know, have an analyst group at the table rather than being on mm -hmm. the outside. I want to be integrated within case investigations with, you know, and not just one person, but everybody as a whole, you know, I, there's things that I wanted to see our department embrace the, the talent and the skills of the analysts and include them in, you know, decision-making and strategies. And, and so, you know, I, rather than sitting behind and saying, you know, complaining, complaining, I was getting tired of my, hearing myself complain about, oh gosh, I wish we did this. And I wish we had more, mm -hmm. you know, toys and, and tools. And, and when the position came up, I'm like, and, and you have to have the attitude of, well, if, you know, it, I, I might as well take it. Cause I don't, if somebody else takes it, then, you know, I can complain, keep complaining all I want, but mm -hmm. I need to make a move. And that's why I made the move to do yeah. that. And yeah. so I, I hope I've done 
a good job of it. I think <laughs> I have, but you know, I think we have some great, great, fantastic analysts, great tools. Um, I think they're the best analysts in the world, personally. But that's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think your perspective is is a good one, and certainly your attitude is a good one too. Because I think I think if you talk to a lot some people and you mention the management role, their first thought is going to be oh, I have to be supervising people. I have mm-hmm. to be in meetings all day. I'm no longer doing analysis. I'm now doing this administrative tasks that yes. can be kind of boring. Um, yes. <laughs> whereas I feel that you saw it as an opportunity to grow. And I think some people might not take that same attitude. Well, you know, with me, you know, I had been an analyst at that point for 20 years and, Mm -hmm. you know, I I got a lot of it out of my system. I did what I wanted to do. I thought, I think I worked at some fantastic assignments with great detectives. So I was ready to make that move. I was offered that position earlier on in my career and I passed on it. But, you know, if I said this time, if I don't take it, somebody else will. (laughs) And, and so that's why I jumped at it and I was, I was ready for it. And I, and I think with that, I, I felt like I had it, got it all out of my system so I can actually lead without feeling like, gosh, I wish I were there or still kind of micromanage some of the analysts and say, well, if I were there, I would do this and this and this. You know, I had to take a whole new vision of like, OK, let's look at management. Let's look at our budget. Let's look at our personnel. Let's look at mm-hmm. and you had to kind of take that vision and and kind of use your still use your analytical skills, because every once in a while, if I'm trying to find you know, a document and, and I can't find it. And I kind of use like, I was like, Oh, I found it. It's like finding a suspect, but I found a document, you know? So it's just, mm-hmm. it's like kind of using and applying your skills in a different way and knowing that the things you're not going to have your analytical success stories anymore, but you're going to have different types of successes and you're going to be able to see and help those analysts who are in the trenches with the detectives and helping to make their job much better. And you have to have that, that attitude and, and it's tough sometimes, though, because like I want to play with you guys, and <laughs> I just you know just can't. <laughs> so, do you move from being the supervisor and crime analyst up to the crime analyst program manager? Well, at that point, I was actually there was no there wasn't a position when I was going in. It was a crime analysis program manager that they had created first. And that was the one. So there wasn't a supervising crime analyst until shortly after I was hired. And then it went, then the supervising crime analyst position was approved. So I had to make the jump. So it was a lot harder for me. Currently for my vacancy, you have to have supervision experience. And more than likely, it'll be the supervising crime analysts who are going to be qualified for that position because they have the skill sets for that. Well, yeah, and that's I think that's what I want to explore a little bit here, because you're talking about this. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, organizational chart, right? Mm-hmm. Where I, so you have the the crime analysis program manager and then how many uh, supervisors did report to you when you had the position? Um, I have, there's nine uh, supervising crime analysts that reported to me. Um, there was one vacancy when I left, um, and which just recently was filled. So we're back to nine. Okay, and then so we have the crime out, the 75, we're budgeted for 75 crime analysts. So yeah, so that, but that's, uh, see, to me, that that's a whole other ball game. And so, because there's this idea of 
managing, supervising a small group of analysts, you're talking about five, six, ten, whatever it may be in, in a unit at a police department. But you were overseeing 80 people. Primarily, yes. And, and I also oversaw the stat unit, too. We have the statistical unit, which is different job specifications than a crime analyst. At that level, when you are overseeing 80 people, how does that differ? Obviously, there are more people, more problems. But at that level, what's your perspective on supervising 80? Well, I mean, you don't sleep. No, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> no, it's actually it's you know, it's always you always have to be on things. But that's when mm -hmm. you have to learn to delegate. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'm hoping that I was able to successfully pass along a lot of the collateral duties because because when it was smaller program, I used to do a lot of the, the travel training and the budget and the contract renewals. And I did a lot of that. But because we've gotten so much bigger, I've handed off a lot of those collateral duties to the supervisors. And so, you know, there's some who handle the contract renewals and some who handle the purchasing of, you know, the software and the hardware and to identify the computer specs. And there's others, Annette Fajardo, she's supervising crime analyst. She does travel training. And Shamanami and LCD Victoria, they do a lot of the the technical stuff for ordering computers and hardware. And they also do a lot of our data that's being requested for public request acts and other types of executive requests that come through. So there is a lot that the analysts do, I mean, the supervisors do to, to alleviate that for me. So that actually helps. And it's actually helped since I've been now out of the program <laughs> because they are still seamlessly running that and but it is it is a lot, but it's it's really rewarding. I, I you know we do have personnel issues, and you just have to just tackle them, and you look at them, and you look at them as a, a challenge. But then you also you know want to help as well. And so it, it's there's a lot of people who actually come to come, come to my aid to also help me navigate a big ship. Who does this position report to? The position reports to well, actually I report to a lieutenant who reports to a captain and um, okay. but 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 because I'm also considered kind of on a lieutenant level mm -hmm. um, I, there's many times I would just go straight to my captain and we, sure. we work directly with each other and then yeah. from there we do our our command stuff and a lot of it depends on the the year and and you know the pendulum swings there's other times in my career as a manager that the supervisors and I have dealt directly with the sheriff and the sheriff preferred mm -hmm. to speak with us and or the chief or a commander. So it just depends on who's at the helm um, during a, sp a specific year. At that level, too, you, you know, you're at that nice spot where we just mentioned you're you're overseeing 80 folks below you. But then above you, you're dealing with all the all the politics and all the mm -hmm. the evil. I shouldn't say evil. The executive board, right? Like the <laughs> yeah. like the, the you know the it, sheriff and and all the deputy sheriffs, right? Exactly. Yes. You you deal a lot with with politics. I was a poli sci major at Loyola, so I, I hope that helped out a little bit. Uh, but you know, it it is it is definitely you get into a different realm. You're not doing crime analysis anymore, and you you want to make sure that you're 
working positively with the executives and your command staff and any issues that you have with them, you want to make sure that it doesn't trickle down to the analysts. So the analysts feel a lot of that. I mean, they obviously see some effects if we get budget cuts or we can't get certain equipment, but, you know, it is definitely a, a kind of a tricky way to navigate sometimes during in, the, in that world. But mm-hmm. it, again, it's it's pretty rewarding. And it just depends on you know the year. There's times that it's just you know it's it's great and it works out well. There are other times where it's a little bit more of a challenge when you work mm-hmm. with executives. But but it's 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 good. I I really enjoy it yeah. a lot. And then you know learning management. I'm always constantly. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I I, I was really you know when I would go. I think I mentioned it in one of my presentations where you know every time I go to airport I always get a management book or a, a leadership book. And, you know, we're always trying to hone my skills on management and leadership and working with people. And what's, you know, because leadership and management 10 years ago was a lot different in those books than they are today. Now it's like leadership of self and taking care of yourself. Back then it was like, you know, don't sleep and only sleep for two hours and you can do your job then. <laughs> so, you know, you, you always have to kind of keep on tabs on that because there's not a lot of management classes within our our department or even in law enforcement in general. And and so, you know, I, I kind of tell people, you know, read books, you know, look at even the TV you know, shows that, you know, that you, where you can get some leadership skills from. And, and I took mine from that show, Deadliest Catch, which is like my favorite show. <laughs> and I just love that show. But seriously, Harvard Business Review said, you know, they get their leadership little tactics from them too. But it, it's so funny. Because, you know, you it's just, you kind of find, you know, the little tidbits like, oh, I like the way he did that. Maybe I could apply it to what I'm doing here on this day. So it's uh, it's a matter of just keeping honed on your skills especially management skills. Yeah. Have you nailed down what you're most proud of in your 37 years? The analysts. Oh, I just love the analysts. I have them on a pedestal. I am so (laughs) proud. I am so proud of actually the way this, the crime analysis unit, the sheriff's analysis unit has, has grown. I mean, from the time that I was there from 86 to what they're doing now, I mean, I, I just, I, I can't even in my wildest dreams, imagine the way it could be right now. And it's just not specifically, you know, for, you know, to them, it's also the profession, you know, where we've taken it. You, know, you go to the conferences and you see these phenomenal things that people are doing and, and across the, you know, the world and, you know, how we can learn from each other. So I think, I think it's where the analyst has taken the profession and uh, it's not anything that a manager has done or a supervisor has done. It's what the analysts have done with it and, and, you know, given certain opportunities and I think that's what I'm, I'm proudest of, to be the, at, kind of at the forefront of a profession and to see where it's going and where it will be going. I mean, I think that's the most exciting part of my career. I know there's a lot of stuff that you can't talk about in terms of some mm-hmm. of the cases and some of the stuff that you did. But give us a sense of what it was like to be an analyst in Los Angeles, right? Because, I mean, that's a unique scenario there there's it's such obviously you got all the celebrities and whatnot there you have Mm -hmm. this such a big populated area and just and so i'm just as i'm sitting here listening to your talk and it's just like you know it's not just any other job she had she had this job in one of the biggest cities 
in the world. As I mentioned too, you you I know and I know you can't talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're doing stuff with like murders for hire, ra- kidnapping ransoms, like stalking cases. These are cases that I th- think the typical analysts are, yeah. <laughs> are rarely going to be dealing with. Yeah, well, it, it's it's hard to say, but you know, it definitely is a unique area and I think, you know, with the different areas of the county, they're so different because, you know, you have your, in our Northern County, you know, there's huge vast areas I and mean, they, they can be little, little areas and departments in itself, but, you know, it's just, you know, you know, we just look at, I guess, taking crime the way it is, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what, what the crime is, whether it's in a residential burglary at a celebrity's house or it's at somebody's house, you know, and they just bought their first house in a small little community and, you know, on a small salary, you know, it's, we have to look at it the same way. And I think, you know, it's just, you know, that's how we kind of look at things. You know, we definitely have some high profile cases that our analysts have been on and, and many, some of them have spoken on those cases, but, you know, I, it's, it's, it's definitely unique. I, I, I couldn't tell you, I just, I think we just, we just do the work and we just, mm-hmm. you know, every once in a while we look up and we're like, Oh wow, we just did some great stuff, but we just go in with the same mentality of using our foundations of analysis. We do what we need to do. And and then if we come up with something great that belongs to on a you know is associated with a high profile case, you know, that's you know, I think that's that's amazing. And you know, one of the things that I've always wondered since I started in 1986, the night stalker, Richard Ramirez, he was arrested in 1985. And I always wondered if we had been on board with the tools that we have, or even a couple of years into it, if we would have found him via computer but you know he was it was that was all done pretty much manually and and hitting the you know pavement and and so it's it's always been one of my things but those are the kind of you know crimes that you know you just you know what what's going to be the next the next sensational type of a crime but we just look at it is we're trying to solve the case and make you know you know the victims you know the family you know, help them out in, in any way we can. So, you know, we just kind of have to take that small little mentality, even though it's a huge case, and then just keep plugging away. But yeah. but I always wondered about that Richard Ramirez case. And we the detective, the lead detective is a retired LASD detective, and we brought him in on one of our all-call meetings. And it was very fascinating to hear his perspective on on his role in that in that case, but it would have been fun to have a crime analyst associated with that too. You mentioned TV. Have you ever been characterized on a TV show? I have not. No. See, <laughs> if you make it thirty years, I think that should be a requirement. Be, yeah. That's right. Really I mean, like, yeah. I think. Me? I mean, <laughs> at least. I. I mean, Law and Order. I mean, comes to mind. I mean, that was the. You know, that definitely. You should definitely be a character on Law and Order. Not the victim. I don't want you dying. But I yeah. think. Yeah. I think as the the manager, program manager of analysts, they could write a role in there. So. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I, you know, there's been certain types of roles in TV shows that are, are they kind of allude to them being analysts and they are analysts, but no one has ever really said this is a crime analyst with 
LASD or a crime analyst with LAPD or a crime analyst with NYPD. And, and one day I think there's going to be some, a role of, of that person being called a crime and intel analyst. Uh, and maybe there is one right out right now that I don't know about, but I, I know there's been similar roles, but they've always been called something else. But one day yeah. we'll get there. One day I'll show that, that one sergeant who said crime analyst and computers will never go along. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'll show him. Is there something that there was an issue in 1986 that you would have thought, oh, by 2023, we'll have this all figured out, but yet we're still struggling with this issue? Not, it's hard to say, but I think mm-hmm. the most prevalent one is going to be the, the sworn versus, you know, civilian slash mm-hmm. professional staff relationship, you know, and it's, you know, we are very respectful of sworn, completely respectful. We would love to partner with them, but it is definitely still, you know, a very big, a different world sometimes. And I think that's what makes it a little bit more challenging. You know, it's, you know, we, you know, there's like, when I first started out, you know, it was obviously, you know, civilian right out of college, you know, who's this, you know, young girl who's telling me where to go and where to drive. And, you know, I just, as long as the analyst knows, you know, to, you know, hold your ground and to, you know, be tenacious and to just to show them, just to demonstrate, you know, I, I think, you know, the biggest thing that it's always been my little motto is to give them what they don't know they need. And as long as you can do that, you know, I think, you know, you can give the detectives and patrol and executives these tools, you, you know, they can be doing their things. But in the meantime, say, hey, by the way, here's your here's a link chart. You may want it. Maybe mm-hmm. that may help you out in court and just put yourself out there. But I think, you know, it's still a challenge. I mean, there's times when I have been sitting next to um, somebody in a uniform and they just may have just been fairly new out of the academy and you know sometimes they get asked the questions and i'm like well hey i think i have more experience on crime analysis (laughs) and but that's just you know it's not i I don't take that personally it's you know it's a certain type of a you know a a vision that people have of you know who may have more knowledge in in crime and and so you know as long as you kind of understand that you are working in a paramilitary environment you know you're going to have those issues, but it it can be very frustrating. And I think one day, you know, I hope we can be so integrated that, you know, we can just partner with them without being, you know, questioned about our skill set or our credibility. And, and so I think that that's still something that it's, I don't know if that'll ever get resolved, but I am glad this position of crime analysis are being um, held by professional staff. I think it keeps the consistency and and it's a lot different than when you're sworn when you are there, then you move on and you get promoted and you lose that knowledge set. And so I think it's very important that it remains a professional staff who does this position. All right. So how about some advice for our listeners? So I'm guessing in 37 years, you probably picked up a thing or two about how to do this job. Yes, I I do have, you know, those are certain things that I, you know, I'd like to share with some of the analysts that I share them with analysts currently, and I don't think it ever goes out of style, but, you know, I had mentioned earlier, you know, give them what they don't know they need, give those detectives information that you might have, because you know the tools you can use, you know what you can provide them, but, you know, make yourself accessible to detectives and patrol, and, you know, if you're able to sit right in the middle of DB, 
sit there, be nosy, hear what's going on. It's very important. I know a lot of people or executives think it's really important. I mean, exciting if they can give you a big office that's in the corner of a building and you're nowhere near DB. I think it's, you know, does you a disservice. So be right in the middle of it all. You know, try to limit the percentage of admin duties that you're given. I know we're supposed to be providing you know, the, the important stuff to the detect for the, to the administration they're our bread and butter you know they, they are the ones who pay our salary and we have to make sure we make them happy but it's also important to focus on the investigative and patrol needs because when it comes to budget cuts I have found that those investigators and those patrol deputies are going to fight for you and they're not going to want whereas you know not want to not going to want to let you go whereas those administrators may be gone or promoted, and if you hang your hat on that one person and they're gone, then it just doesn't do you any any good. So keep that percentage of admin duties low, but still keep them. And then you know put yourself out there. I think the biggest thing of you know you can describe between a clerk and an analyst is making the recommendations. Put yourself out on a limb when you put a bulletin out. Provide recommendations. Hey, you go here, or maybe you, you know, director patrol units. Why don't you just do this on this time and date? So take that bulletin to the next level, not just, you know, kind of just copy what's on a crime report and put it on a bulletin. Provide your recommendations and your suggestions. You're the analyst. And go to briefings and ride along. I think effective communication is so important. So when you see a deputy and a detective, tell them, hey, you know, that information that you just gave me, this is how I used it. And this is what, if you keep doing that, I can use it for my analysis. Or, you know, if they you know, aren't putting something in, hey, can you add this element to the report? Can you, you know, write in if the car is parked on a driveway or in a carport? You know, that's the stuff that if they know that you're looking at it, they will do it. And so that communication goes a very long way. Share information, that's really important. Don't assume that just because a residential burglary happened in early morning hours, that deputy on PMs is gonna know, or the officer is gonna know what happened. And, and so don't assume, always brief, talk, communicate and then be creative like i mentioned earlier you know using pawn slips i don't know if, if people even use pawn slips anymore or if they're even available <laughs> uh, field... i was thinking the same thing i was I like i don't That's... know i'm not yeah. sure but there are there are secondhand dealer shops available I mean, they're still out there but you know the field interview report cards you know any kind of unconventional sources that you can get information from you know be creative about it and then I think my biggest one is being being proactive. You know, don't wait for others to come to you. Go out there. Tell them what you can do. Be ahead of things and put yourself out on the limb, like I mentioned earlier. Mentor and train others. Give formal presentations, you know, by sharing your knowledge about that. Don't keep it all to yourself, you know, and also it hones your speaking skills. The more you're out there, the more confident you become as an analyst. Make sure you stay on the latest technology and crime trends. You know, that's that's key. Um, you're only as good as your last case. I've always said that. You know, be a lead analyst when given the opportunity. Hey, say, hey, you got a big series. Hey, I'll be the lead. I'll take it all. You know, put yourself out there again. Learn the tools in your toolbox. And if you don't know how to use them, you know, find a colleague who may have that and learn from that colleague. And then just network. Network with your 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 peers. And I think the most important thing is the IACA conferences I've attended, the, the various other conferences. You know, that's how you meet investigators, how you meet your analysts. And and so when you have information that you're needed, you know who to turn to to help you out. So that's invaluable. Nice. So those are the ones, the major stuff I have. Most excellent. Let's, let's move on to personal interest now. 
All right. You like the local spots, music and, and whatnot, I guess. So what, what do you typically do for fun there in L.A.? For fun. So what I like to do is just try to find those really fun things like, you know, a day at the museum. You know, they go to these, you know, the Huntington Library is fun. Those little places that are little gems that you, know, that you forget about and, you know, you kind of find out through, you know, books or magazines or whatever. And you're like, hey, you know what? I haven't been there in a while. So I like to find those little obscure places to visit and to, to, to go on like a, a day hike and to a place that was maybe just, you know, 20 miles from here. And it may be a treasure trove of, of stuff. So wow. I like to do a lot of those things. Hollywood Bowl. Um, Jason, if you've never been to the Hollywood Bowl, you need to go to the Hollywood Bowl. I love the Hollywood Bowl. It's, it's just, it's one of our, our um, treasures that we have in LA County. And it's, it's great. All right. So and, that's what I like to do. And the second one is the harmonica. And you said you used to play it while sitting in traffic. Well, yes. Well, so, you know, I, I think it is so funny when you ask me about some of my hobbies and such. I, I, mean, I think this job has been so consuming that, you know, I get a chance to go run. I love to run. I like, uh -huh. like to read. Uh, I like to, you know, hike and go to music venues. I like all that. But sometimes you just don't have enough time to do things. Uh -huh. And so, I kind of want to learn an instrument and I've always kind of enjoyed the harmonica. I really enjoy listening to harmonica music. I love the blues. I love all that. And, and so I played a couple of songs on my harmonica and, and I have a supervisor who actually got me a harmonica and I had on the side of my, my little pocket in my car. And when I'm sitting in traffic, I just pull it out and I kind of play stuff. It's all gibberish stuff, but it's always been something that I wanted to hone a little bit more. And so now that I have a little bit more time, uh, I'd oh. like to, to kind of see if I can take some lessons in harmonica oh, playing. <laughs> yeah. What was the average commute time? Oh, it just depends on where I went. I had my major, my main office is about 40 minutes away. Okay. And if I were to go to the Hall of Justice in downtown LA, it was about two hour drive. So Oof. it was a little bit longer. Wow. That's, <laughs> a, that's a, that's a yeah. lot of harmonica. Yeah. <laughs> well, not all the time, but yes. <laughs> all right. All right. So besides learning the harmonica, so now that you retired, what's what's next? You know, I, I really don't know. I, I think I just I, I just want to do those things I, I that I've always wanted to do. I've uh -huh. I've gotten offers to work at the local, you know, Seagram Hall, which is a, a music and concert venue to help out with the kids with disabilities and I've always liked literacy classes and I've always wanted to help out kids though so I think I'd like to do things like that and maybe stay away from crime analysis but I'm so entrenched in crime analysis that you know, I've also been given opportunities to maybe consult or teach and and so I think especially with leadership and management I think there's a need for that so if there's places that the opportunity comes up you know maybe something like that as well so it, it's really hard to say but I do want to do the things that I haven't had a chance to do like during the daytime you know go mm -hmm. you know to places you know where it takes me two hours to get to where on a Wednesday it takes me 20 my 20 minutes you know and, yeah. and enjoy something fun so those are the things I just I like to venture out and and do those kinds of things and I think I want to continue that travel yeah. I love to travel and right. uh, I think traveling would be fun. So yeah, that's yeah. what I like to do. Yeah. You mentioned the Albert Mesa group. That's something that you could get involved with if you 
still oh, wanted those to guys be. travel way too much no 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 i'm talking about the manage like the putting into a manager's group together oh a manager's group together that would be yeah 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 like that would be something that would probably shouldn't take up much time i mean just kind of putting that together and answering some messages and giving advice i wouldn't think that would be be too bad my second idea for you is way more involved is that (laughs) that that you write a book Uh, you can you could write a book on hiring because i'm you obviously have some skill in hiring the right people. And well, yeah, it was, it was, that mean, was an Annie and, Annie and Liz combo. We, we, we can write a yeah. book on that one. But yeah, um, but I really had a really fun time uh, on the interview panel with you um, at the IACA conference in 2021 on interview skills. Oh, uh, you mean? That, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you hosted. That was a lot of fun to do that. And so I, but I, you know, there's, a, there's yeah. a, definitely a need for it. Oh, uh, well, there wasn't a need that day, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yeah. But, but I get to see Sean Bear and Oh, man. And, oh yeah, for, the, for those that might not remember, I think I've talked about this before on the show, but we, you know, the previous year at the IACA conference, they put together all the the surveys and folks said that they really wanted something on interviewing right like how best inter interviewing skills and tips and tricks and all this other stuff so we take that information and i said hey i got this idea we can put together like a mock interview type type thing we'll have two candidates we'll have we'll have a panel i put this this whole thing together as you mentioned you were part of it sean bear was part of it I had a rope in Noah Fritz and because the Lauren was oh, had a personal funny. issue, had to go back home. And, you know, the the Winslows now, the Brittany and Mike were part mm-hmm. of it, too. They were the interviewees. Just a great lineup. And it was put on Friday morning. And I don't think a single person <laughs> showed up. Or oh, that, that there was a few. Panel, was like, yeah. There was a few. Oh my gosh! It was I, well. There, if there were, there were more people on the stage than there were in the audience. It was very yeah. few. Few. It well, was. But yeah, that was a, that was a re- really good program. It's just but, that nobody but, saw it. But to be to be fair, that was the last <laughs> class of the last day, and uh, yeah. so that was yeah. Yeah, a lot of people were catching planes. Yeah, that was that was tough, but that was that was a lot of fun putting together. So (laughs) it was it was a lot of fun. But But yeah, do but I think white papers are a good thing as well. Yeah, get that started with Rachel Boba and Matt Harris and Sam Gwynn and. That was that that was a lot of fun. Definitely something good too. So and I might you know you know and and another idea you could always be a consultant on one of these tv shows right jason i just want to go to disney world i'm gonna go hang out with you in florida and go to disney world yeah (laughs) disney world yeah that's that's true and you can compare (laughs) compare and contrast disneyland to disney world you can be you can be a youtuber yeah exactly i want to be an influencer (laughs) (laughs) tips and and tricks exactly uh, that's fun but uh, it's been it's been a hoot in this whole 37 years it's been so much fun and i I made a lot of great friends along the road and it's 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 neat and i'm so glad i got to end it talking with you it's great yeah well i'm glad that uh, we uh, got together and and talked today and so i hope that you know maybe i will be able to things will get better there with the sheriff's department and that will i'll be able to interview 
analysts uh, as they're in the job. I hope I don't have to wait for everybody to retire before they talk to mm-hmm. me. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> we just want to make sure we we all take care of each other and yep. we're all good. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. Good. Well, our last segment of the show is Words <laughs> of the World, and this is where I give the guest the last word. Liz, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Okay. Um, mine is based on my pet peeve and it's greeting people at work in the morning. Say good morning. It's a quick thing to do, but it speaks volumes and it goes a long way you, just to acknowledge one another, not just to those with whom you work with on a one, uh, one-on-one basis, but to those who also share your office area, such as like your clerks and your detectives and other staff members, you know, it's just polite and, and courteous. You know, it just makes somebody's day better. It just acknowledges their presence. It's like wishing them well for the day. And it just creates an overall positive atmosphere in the workplace, breaks down barriers and, you know, shows people that they're valued. And the same goes for saying goodbye. It's just about showing professional courtesy and being polite. And it just takes seconds to do there. Very good. Why well, leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Liz. <laughs> Happy retirement. Congratulations. You. And you be safe. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks, everybody, for a great 37-year run. I really appreciate it. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.